There you go, more pop perfection. That's the Smiths and that's this charming man. That was taken from a John Peel session recorded on the 14th of September 1983. Yes, you do the maths. It was a very long time ago and featured on the album Hatful of Hollow. Anyway, this is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Indeed. As always, playing the finest in indie pop, this week's special guest is going to be Julian Henry from The Hit Parade. So expect quality chat, or at least two old men talking away about music in great detail. It kept us amused anyway, if not you. And um, yes, the usual award-worthy playlist. So to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite of mine. Yes, it's going to be See You in Havana. Someday 
was a shit ton of patience. So he pulls me back. It's a great laugh about hope. Laugh about you. That's how the story goes. And there you go. That is Pop Perfection, the hit parade with a track titled See You in Havana. That also featured the silky vocals of Meow's Kath Carroll, unquote in there. This is from a review from the Record Mirror from September 1986, only 30 decades, 30 years, 30 years ago. Well, 32 now. But uh, and this was the review. It says possibly the purest, most straightforward pop group on earth. The Hit Parade have been releasing mini pop gems for a couple of years now. Quietly, confidently, without fuss or hype. There you go. And this is a particularly, um, yes, emotional um, show for many reasons. Um, but I've been trying to track down Julian Henry. I don't know why it's taken me so long, but it did. And, um, and the backstory of this was that back in 1987, I wrote to him to ask for that single. Because in the old days, um, I used to listen to John Peel religiously, but I never listened to it live. I'd always put a cassette in, record 45 minutes, and then listen to it the next day or the following week. And I was driving you know, I lived in Suffolk at the time to Walberswick and um, John Peel used to have a world service show and I recorded that as well because I was, you know, didn't want to miss any potential pop, you know, pop moment, rock moment or rap, reggae. He played it all. Anyway, this particular song came on the um, cassette recorder and I thought, wow, that's incredible. And in those days, the good old days, you used to have to um, hunt down these kind of hidden gems. And John Peel gave the address of the artist. So I wrote away to Julian Henry, the singer songwriter, and he wrote back on the 16th of February 1987 with this letter. Dear David, I enclose Hit Parade record as requested. Could you send me £1.50p? To me at the above address, question mark. Cheers, Julian Henry. And I must have done because um, I would have done, actually. Or I'd have sent a check or postal order. You'll have to Google what postal orders were. But um, back in those days, we didn't have PayPal. No way. Anyway, so he wrote to me. And I've always kept this um, single and also all the blurb that went with it. So huge excitement because then I interviewed him a few weeks ago amazing story i know anyway this is me babbling i think we should have some more music then the first part of the interview this is a track that is going to be titled or has been titled for many decades probably um you didn't love me then no you say that you love me now you didn't love me then and it's so like you go to complain now the things have run away from your hands that were stretched out Always wanting more But it's over at last And I don't, don't want to hear about what's past Now it's gone, so goodbye It's time to watch us
Breezy Pop, that is the hit parade with a track titled You Didn't Love Me Then that came out on the JSH label in 1985. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show, always playing the finest in indie pop. If you want to contact me, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. And all the shows have been archived for your exciting Amusement, you can get it on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and um, did I say Mixcloud? I don't know, possibly. Who knows, who cares? Um, <clears throat> God, this reminds me of the Generation Game with the cuddly toy. But anyway, it's there. It's all on those social media platforms that you can find podcasts, so C86 Show. Anyway, look, this is the interview with Julian Henry that I did a few weeks ago, which I have to say I'm hyperventilating with excitement because, um, yes, I'd been spending years trying to track him down and eventually got him, and it was like cash back. Anyway, this is it. This is the first part, and anything or everything you want to know about Julian Henry, but we're afraid to ask. So this is where I asked about those early formative Fifteen years, Julian. Take it away. So um, I uh, grew up in a in a suburb called Gerrard's Cross, which is um, Slough, Windsor, kind of Buckinghamshire. And I went to a public school, and I left that public school. I kind of got into music massively when I was in the last two years, really. When I was at school, gave up my exams. I just gave up on work because I went to see started seeing punk bands. Basically, I saw I was very lucky. I just because I. I was in London on the right night. I saw a Sex Pistols concert, and then I saw the Jam in 1976. I think it was sort of Sex Pistols. So I saw these, started seeing these concerts, and they had a massive effect on me. And I just um, changed my life. And I started. I got a you know cheap guitar, started trying to play it, and um, uh, didn't do any more work from that point on. Didn't go to university. You know, just disappointed my parents greatly. <laughs> And um, but started getting this music bug, read the music papers religiously and then um, started trying to write and was able to get a bit of work writing. And I was like walking around London, knocking on doors, trying to get the money to just get out of my parents' house. And um, that's really how I started. I had two friends of mine from school and one of them wanted to set up a studio and the other was a drummer. So we started making music. We did about three different sets of bands trying to play locally in the rug beaconsfield rugby club and other places like that um yes. wickham we went to played in the nags head and we were watching you know following the jam around and doing all these different things at the same time and then eventually started recording with them in at the home studio uh and that was we and that ended up being our first single which was 1984 i think or 83 or 84 was our first hit parade single right made with the with the two boys who i was at school with Yes, and excellent. Those are the boys that I still play with today. Yeah, because interestingly, I've kind of put down indie pop between the years of 83 to 87, which was the lifespan of the Smiths. But you obviously were there just beforehand, or just about sort of listening to music, yeah. that, that kind of grey area, what, what people refer to as, I suppose there's post-punk, which is all those kind of slightly scratchy bands. And then you had people like the Marine Girls that came along who who were very sort of um, acoustic and sort of lo-fi in their recording techniques. So were, were you sort of, was there any other bands around or artists that you were thinking, you were looking at thinking we could be them or trying to sort yeah. of follow them? Yeah, I mean, yes. And um, independent labels, Rough Trade, The Raincoats, first album. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I bought Marine Girls. I might have bought Marine Girls, but Girls at Our Best was another one at that time, which was fantastic. 
Um, but all that indie stuff, I, I was, I, I, I like a Hoover, I was stuck a suck up. I remember going to see Kid Creole at that time and absolutely loving Kid Creole on the go. And also there were these nightclubs because I was in London and I was working. I was trying to get my articles published in, in The Enemy and other places. And I had a couple of pieces published in The Enemy and I was really out every night. So I was sucking everything up. And, and that Smith, it was, it was really, uh, 84, I think, was this charming man. I think, was it 84? Because I, I remember trying to work it out. I remember buying Hand in Glove and then getting um, uh, this charming man. And desperately, I wasn't a good enough guitar player. You see, I remember sitting there desperately trying to work it out. And I remember writing to Morrissey and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I was definitely doing that. But in, in those days, the Smiths were just another one of quite a few interesting, good guitar bands. Yes. independent bands that are associated with those little labels, as I'm sure you remember. Yeah, because it was kind of a, a, I suppose it was kind of a strangely religious experience kind of buying the enemy on a Wednesday, you know, and I used to always record John Peel, so I was desperately sort yeah. of getting into bands like, you know, Girls at Our Best, but then it was people like the Shop Assistants and the Wolf Hands and, and all That's those right. kind of those bands that came along. It seemed to create a scene quite quickly. And what I didn't appreciate until talking to quite a few people now was that if you, you know, like the story of a band seemed to be, you know, they'd spent a couple of years getting together and making a sound. And in, if John Peel gave them that play, you know, that kind of gave them this sort of ability or, or sort of the break to get to get a kind of somebody in Norwich at the kind of indie rock club or indie club to sort of say oh do you want to come and play on a Monday or up to you know Glasgow Leeds yeah. Bristol and so I didn't realize that kind of the, the the sort of the importance of the gatekeeper that was John Peel really that he he was able to give people that ability to play outside their normal friends and family kind of community and and that that was quite an interesting scene which at the time I didn't really sort of appreciate at all because you just think oh that's just normal but now looking back yeah that was really fortunate well, it was. and 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 also because I, I was I'd I'd got a job working at a company called Albion so I was able I had this kind of I, I loved indie music but I was also exposed to new commercial stuff like I remember seeing Depeche Mode at their showcase at the uh, Embassy Club in Bond Street. And I remember seeing Haircut 100 before they had a deal. All those bands. So I would look at those bands. And those were bands that were being signed up by Arista and these other CBS and Prefab Sprout. And they were getting channeled towards the mainstream. And I, so I had that going on on one hand. And it, weirdly, in that context, Peel, I, I remember sitting in these meetings and, and, and label meetings. And pe Peel was kind of treated as an oddity. He was, he was kind of... Um, right out on left field and wasn't particularly liked by the mainstream label music, you know, by the labels who were busy really pushing these much more commercial bands like Curiosity and all those other pop acts that came through at that time. Yes. And, and, and Peel was seen as quite dark and quite sort of odd. But he, I remember having, yeah, he, I just had a respect for not just him, but also his producer, John Walters, the guy who worked with him. And I eventually met him. I met him a few times, and um, he was, you know, he was, he was, he, he, he was, he was his own man. That was the thing I think about both of them. Actually, they were very singular yes. and committed, and also they weren't impressed by the commercial, um, uh, whatever the power that existed around Radio One in those days. Because to get on the playlists, these other bands I'm talking about, the Depeche Modes and the Peck One Hundred, you know, I started to learn what. You, and see what you had to do to get on a playlist. And John Peel had just set himself apart from all of that. And 
he benefits now, I think, or his reputation benefits now. Indeed, the John Peel Appreciation Society here. Um, that is going to be, um, that is the first part of my interview with Julian Henry. If you want to find out any more information about the hit parade, they have a very groovy website, which is um, probably got lots of W's, and then it's the dash hit dash parade dot code.uk I expect if you just google the hit parade band and um, searched around you will be able to find it but it does feature lots of information the story of the band the seven inch um, seven inch vinyl long players and much much more and they do also have an Instagram page feed as well they probably got other bits and pieces but anyway it's all there and there's still a creative and happening um, band combo artist so do check them out because they're also all on spotify as well but look i think we should play some more music and then more chat this is taken from an album that came out in 2014 the album titled cornish pop songs and this is the ending track which is from paddington paddington to penzance
Yes, I know what you're thinking. It's like Darren Brown, isn't it? But you've just got to go out and buy that album. That is a track from the hit parade titled From Paddington to Penzance. And that's from the album Cornish Pop Songs that came out five years ago. And um, production levels were really high, actually. It wasn't like the 80s at all. Anyway, fine, write him. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the second part of my interview with Julian Henry. When I had been waffling on a lot about John Peel and John Walters, the John Peel producer, who often said when John Peel reached puberty, we were all in danger which I thought was quite a cute quote. And then I was talking about the importance of the 80s kind of unemployment scene and things like the Job Seekers Allowance or the Enterprise Allowance, alongside things like the SWP and TVP and all that kind of groovy stuff that we had in the 80s. And this was Julian's response to the world that I mentioned, which was unemployment and creativity. Mm, interesting subjects. Julian, what's your take? Well, I, yeah, yeah, and I remember there was a time when I got sacked, and I was um, or had made redundant, whatever the thing was, and I remember claiming the dole and finding it was quite a weird experience signing on, and I did it for about six months, but it was a lifesaver, and um, there was a system, a structure, a kind of support structure. I've no idea what happens now. I'm not sure. I think it's much more complicated <laughs> and harder um, for if you're 20 or something, and you. I know, lose your job but but yes and I think that possibly allowed musicians but but it, it wasn't just that I think the other thing was the culture the thing I remember that was so powerful those all these bands be it Napalm Death or some little indie band they, 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 they had really they, they almost had manifestos they had identities and you know the, the music papers were absolutely critical the power of the music papers the four music papers and music week um, was incredibly important, and and the guy did the chart, Alan Jones, that who, who did club music, and th- th- there was a whole culture that supported uh, and encouraged and led you into what these bands were all about. And I found that completely absorbing, and and I think it helped make made the culture as as rich. And so, and I I actually love the eighties for that reason. I think the eighties has got something that. Other 60s and 70s, all good, you know, in different ways. But the 80s has this really peculiar thing because it had the kind of Thatcherism forcing political thought, soft politics or hard politics, forcing you to think politically. And you had nightclubs. So you had people, and some of the nightclubs were like kind of extreme art performance. And you had all these really bizarre people in nightclubs and bands like Blue Rondo Turk yes. and Animal Nightlife. And, you know, Boy George and people I came out with, you had all that, and you had Prefab Sprout and noodling, all the noodling around on Cherry Red and Rough Red. It was a fantastically rich time, I think, the 80s. And people kind of think about it as being shallow and a bit, oh, it was all sort of hazy fantasy and, <laughs> I don't know, disposable wham or something. Not wham, but, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think, I, I think they're wrong. I think, I think the 80s had this real... Um, depth and richness to it and I think it was all those things it was nightclubs it was politics there's something to kick against they had a structure to support them they had labels chucking money at advertising campaigns and and you know sales teams they had really principled indie people being yes. miserable and it was well, good it was, yeah, it was very good well I sort of forgot how angsty I was sometimes you know until I think back because because I get asked that question you know you went to live aid that must have been brilliant and I go 
actually no I really hated it I was I, they were all the bands I was against and I've had to turn yeah. you know and, and when Queen were on stage you know they said everyone was clapping it's like actually I wasn't I was going that's terrible they shouldn't be playing you know they they broke the apartheid in South Africa you know yeah. and I was thinking no you know I looked at that lineup and thinking where's Susan the Banshees or the Smiths or yeah. Aswad you know and all that red yeah. wedge stuff that was happening and then you had the minus right. and Nelson Mandela so yes what you were saying is quite interesting because one has forget forgets that half the population or 51% are sort of having a great time on top of the pops and living the dream and the other up 49% are sort of all sort of muttering and sort of complaining about everything and I frankly was probably in the latter <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, I was with you I think and I remember watching it I remember watching it from my work I was I was I, I had a very hard I, well, not a work ethic I just every downtime I had I was working on my record sleeves or various manifestos, I was really inspired creatively to do everything myself. That's the other thing that came out of that time. I did everything. And I think lots of other, this thing about starting my own label. And then later on, a bit after that, people started fanzines and that came. And when I first, weirdly, my first interaction with Matt and Claire from Sarah was when they wrote to me when they were doing Are You Scared to Be Happy, the fanzine before Sarah yes. and um, that DIY thing, that work thing of wanting to just go blow it. I'm going to do it myself according to my principles. That was really empowering and uh, very good, I think, for all sorts of creative urges. And it allowed self-expression and people to share things and, you know, it was fantastic. Yes. So you, you know, were one of the people who started a, your own record label, JSH. That's right. So how did that develop? Because having spoke to um, a few people, including Sarah Records and a couple of other people, the Pink Label, my mind's gone blank mm. now. Um, yes, most people start without actually having an idea of what they're doing and the the whole how does this all work and what oh what's an invoice and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. how, so how did you all sort of you know because it was a, a record label for your own music wasn't it rather than sort of trying to have yeah. a, oh. well I wanted to, I, I had a broader manifesto at the beginning but it ended up just being me because I, I kind of didn't have the energy in the end but what what I'd start I'd, I was trying to I'd, I was sending cassettes out we I was doing demos in 82 demos in 83 sending them really hopefully you know doing 50 copies doing, writing these really long letters doing these little postcards promoting myself i got a couple of bits of publicity doing these gigs and no one would turn or none of the music industry people would turn up we had local followers but so i just i remember 82 83 getting more and more not despondent but sort of angry and just thinking Dah. and then I, I was taught how to use a, a, to go into a dark room and how to do what they were called pmt machines it was something like pro photographic transfer paper but it was basically a means of copying and enlarging <laughs> Uh, original artwork so you could make logos so I started fiddling around and taught myself how to use that and then I just thought I'm going to do it I, I went to see the bank manager in Jared's Cross I tried to borrow a thousand pounds they wouldn't let me have a thousand pounds so I came out of about 500 a debt of 500 pounds I recorded with these two school friends we did an A side and a B side forever and stop and we spent about six months um, punting well figuring out how to press and I, I offered it to the Revolver, Bax in Norwich, all the indie. There was a little indie network of distributors. And one of them, Revolver, I think it was Revolver in the end, took us. And they said yes. And we pressed a thousand copies. And I think they ended up, I can't remember, we, I don't know, they took something like 800, put them in all these little record shops. 
and then I did a manifesto, which I went and papered around London myself till I got threatened by some men <laughs> two in the morning, told me to get off their patch. And, um, and then I sent them all out. I put them in envelopes and sent them out. And um, I got a few reviews. And they, people would walk into and then and that's right. And one of the other things I did is I went and stood around outside Radio One, thinking the only person who will play this will be John Peel. And I, I, I was told someone met myself. He goes to this pub, hung around that pub, didn't turn up. Blah blah blah. After about three nights, I see him and I grab him and I give him the record and I say, "This is my first single. I've been really da-da-da-da-da, Have a listen." And I thought nothing else of it. And of course, you know, two weeks later, I'm driving in my car somewhere. And he puts it, he plays it on the radio, and I nearly crashed the car. I've got to say, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish I'd been with someone. I was by myself, but I was so pleased and so happy to hear your own music on the radio. It was a fantastic thing, and and then I was lucky. I, I, so I did that. That's the first single, and I just kept it going. And I did about uh, three after the next two or three years, and then the third. I can't remember actually if it was the third or the fourth, but a couple of them then started getting more airplay. And Peel played it, and then Janice Long played it, and then Kid Jensen was also on. So there was about three DJs on Radio 1. And one of the singles got about five weeks of play dotted across these different shows. And, and then I was getting I've written up in, I remember Just 17 wrote something. But people were sort of writing bits and pieces, and it felt like we had some momentum. So it was kind of good. Yes. And, 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 and that's kind of how it worked. You could do it yourself, and I think that was that was kind of how I started really and once you get that bug and you do it I just love doing it and that's why I still do it now indeed it's a fascinating story I hope you're making notes because I will toast you at the end anyway that's the second part of my interview with Julian Henry from the hit parade I think we should play some more music and then more chat this is taken from I don't know exactly when it's from it's a single that came out I think in 1994 on Sarah Records and this is titled Autobiography
that's the hit parade with a track titled autobiography and that did come out on sarah records back in 1994 not very brit prop sounding anyway it also featured kath carroll and harvey williams plus matt moffat and mike watts and that was produced by raymond watts I wonder if they're brothers. Anyway, enough of that. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Julian Henry. When I was talking about hearing that famous single, See You in, in Havana in 1986 on the John Peel World Service Show, and also featuring Kath Carroll, who was in Meow. And this is the part, or this is the moment when I asked him how he got to meet Kath Carroll. And this was Julian's reply. Julian, what was your reply to that? That's right. I'd seen Meow... Um, play somewhere I'd met her she was writing for the NME um I was I can't remember where I was working but I was working somewhere where I was promoting bands so I, I remember going on taking her on a job to interview a band and we got on really well and we discovered we had she and I we, we both really liked 60s especially people like Dusty Springfield and country singers just these fantastic voices and so we got this connection on talking about music got to know her and her band, and then I just, I can't remember how I, how I asked her, but I just basically said, we're doing these new things, why don't you come and um, rehearse with us? And I was looking for other singers, because I did want to kind of branch out, and so I hired this, these piano rooms in the Wigmore Hall in London, little rehearsal rooms, classical music place. So we went up there, and I just played my songs on piano, and she sung, and I sounded great. And um, at that point, actually, yes, okay, I'm just rewinding my mind here. See in Havana, we also had a couple of labels interested, and one of them was Stiff, that's right, because Dave Robinson had the guy around Stiff, who I didn't know at the time, but they were sort of running into financial problems, and they wanted the idea of a boy-girl thing kind of appealed to them. So they actually put us into a posh studio in Hoxton Square, and we recorded See in Havana in there. And um, Kath sang it, and then... It's just good. It, it worked, and then so we did quite a few other things together after that. Yes, and because um, it was kind of, a, yeah, I was going to say because it had that sort of beautiful romantic melancholic quality to it, which obviously is probably one of my favourite emotions, melancholia. So mm. um, it it had that kind of wistful sort of um, romantic vibe, which you must have been. Were you pleased when you'd sort of recorded it and thought and played it back? And went wow, that's that's definitely it. Yeah, I was, and. Um, I mean, I think, because also it, it was our fifth thing. The fourth one was quite an up-tempo one called You Didn't Love Me Then, which has proved to be more popular. But I think we were kind of, me- it, the mellowness of seeing Havana. And I, I remember Stiff, it wasn't quite as wacky as what Stiff wanted because 
he wanted, they were doing um, faster. Who was it? They had someone like Tracy Ullman they had around then. And, and I remember they wanted, and I remember they were a bit disappointed, but they originally basically pressed it. And on the sleeve, if you look on C in Havana, I basically got the sleeves printed off with a stiff logo and then stiff went out of business. So I thought, oh, blow it, I'm going to do it myself. So again, so I basically ended up putting on JSH. And if you peel off the little black thing on the back of the sleeve, you'll see underneath there's a stiff records logo. So so it wasn't right for stiff, but it was, I loved, yeah, it was it was a really good song. And, and Cast, we connect on exactly those those very sort of sad, tragic stories that are, are, are romantic and sentimental and um doomed you know all of that we love so um that was a good connection yes. point for us. and that obviously sort of led to your the album coming out with love from the hit parade and did you because mm. because having sort of done this show for quite a long time now you know most bands have that five-year narrative as i mentioned where you know getting together doing this sort of the sort of, you know, making a sound, doing the single, then the John Peel session, this is the, you know, those sort of bands, and then the first album, then it's often the tricky second album, and if anybody ever does America, it seems to be the kiss of death, really, and, and that's all over. So how did your sort of narrative go during that period? So I'd, I'd got a job, I got my first kind of proper job, really, uh, end of the 80s, working at a, at a fashion PR company, and I'd put these six singles out and they'd all gone pretty well, but it kind of felt like I'd gone as far as I could go. And then I just, I was in a relationship with the girl who's on the cover and I wanted to give her a present. Uh, so there's a picture on the front of that first album, which is me and her. And I just thought, I'm going to stick all those together and bung a few more things on and give it to her. And I'm doing it for her. So I wanted to give her a copy of the record. And I remember, so I did it, put them all on. It was like a compilation. And... Um, Got, I remember getting the copies, the first copies, and giving it to her, and she was a bit embarrassed, but she, I think she quite secretly quite liked it. And then, and that was it, and that was really how the first album came out, and, and we sold it. I mean, it sold quite well. It got a couple of, the legend on Enemy, or he, I think I remember if he was on the Enemy or Melody Maker then, but someone gave us a great, really nice review. And then a couple of the others said it was really rubbish, and it was like, awful and twee and, <laughs> and, and and so it was and and i think the thing i felt at that time is we all these the, the, the bands were very cliquey and there were there were certain bands that had played a lot live and they had lots of big support and and i really f- did not feel part of that i just felt well i'm just doing this for my own personal reasons really i've i'm a bit of a um you know so, I'm, I'm not in the mainstream so so I, at that point, I, I just thought, I'm just, I, I, you know, why are you doing this? And I thought about it and I thought, I'm doing it for self-expression. I'm doing it to express myself. And I do it because I really like recording. I love the guys I play with. I like, you know, da, da, da. And, it, and I really like writing songs. So, so, and, and, so I did it and I stopped them for a bit. And then, um, and that was the end of that section. But what happened was after that, in sometime, I can't remember the actual dates, but in the early 90s, we started getting phone calls from... Japan, uh, basically, and um, there was a, an import shop in Camden called Rhythm Records that would sell to collectors, and all these Japanese kids had started coming in, and there was a movement starting to gain momentum in the early 90s called Shibuya Kai, which was neo-acoustic. Right. And these Japanese kids started buying our records, really cute young and it was like what how do they connect with this weird sort of suburban introversion and they and they seem to like it and and 
the, the, the guy from the import shop said, I'll buy everything you've got, everything you've got we can sell. And they started just, can you repress this? Can you do that? And something was starting to happen. So, so we were very lucky and we had this sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, sort of break or something happened and, and, and we got popular in Japan. Yes, my God, that famous... And, and, Yes, because I know. I mean, no, no, not, 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 not like Madonna popular. No, I'm not talking about. Or police. <laughs> no, we weren't like that. But, um, but anyway, that basically meant that we signed a deal with. There's a company starting in Japan to service all those kids and fans who were getting into obscure indie music from different parts of the world. Yes, is this called Vinyl and Japan? Is that the label? That's right. Right, because yeah. that, that was one of Because for years I was desperately trying to find girls at our best. And it was like, and eventually I tracked it down. It was on Vinyl Japan, you know, and they seemed to hoover up lots of sort of obscure indie bands. And it was like, oh, that's very handy for, for me. It was it that I'd missed, you know, or couldn't find anymore. So, yeah, I just wondered who, who they were, actually. So... Yeah, Vinyl Japan is a is, is a Japanese started as a Japanese record shop in Tokyo, run by a guy called Tetsuo, who was a kind of rockabilly guy, uh, and he took us. He he basically um, printed some copies of our first album and sold them out, and then said, "I'd like to bring you over." So he took us over to do a tour, which we did, which was great with the Milkshakes uh, in about ninety ninety two or ninety three. We did. And playing with the milkshakes was so, I loved it because I, they were, at that point, it wasn't such a clear retro scene as that. Retro is like an accepted thing now. In those days, it was, again, considered very eccentric if you played old instruments and stuff. And it was, so it was, they were odd, but they were really fantastic. Great players. So anyway, we played with the milkshakes. And then Tetsu, I think we were his second signing. And then he took us over several other times after that and the tours got bigger and then we got to um signed by a bigger japanese company called vinyl japan and they said we want to pay for you to make yeah i think we made a second album with tetsuo which is called more pop songs with vinyl japan then the third album we made for vinyl japan uh and the, we did a fourth album with them as well and we were the gigs were getting big we did some touring with edwin collins which was again really i'd interviewed him by that point because I was a massive postcard fan and um, fantastic spending time with him. And um, and that kind of, yeah, was the second part of our thing. And then we got, we sort of evolved into, we got noticed <laughs> by Sarah Records. Yes, which, which, which in a way, because it was quite interesting that there's a few bands you you know because the, the as you probably realize the, the music press and journalists like to make things quite simple, you know, so you have mm. that kind of, you have the mainstream, but then you had that indie world, then you had the dance, then you had the grunge, then you had Britpop, but then you had bands who didn't quite, who don't quite fit in, and you have to push them down and go, you're going to fit in, because otherwise the narrative doesn't work, like, you know, Carter and people like that mm. and Lush. So obviously Sarah Records come along, and that, that kind of doesn't particularly fit any genre, so everyone kind of ignored them and made sort of rather unpleasant remarks, but obviously have built up this really big cult following. So when you started hearing those bands from, that were part of that Sarah Records sort of roster, did you feel a kindred spirit with that? Well, I think, I, th I think um, we, the first time we felt we had real kindred spirit was weirdly, in one of the first Japanese tours, we, we, there were a couple of very young, there was a band, a two-piece band called Flipper's Guitar, uh, in Japan and I remember them taking us out for supper and seeing all these other kids around us and they were like very shy 
really shy and uh, they were cute. They had this very cute, good dress sense, but very shy. And it was the first time, like, shoegazery. And they didn't really want to talk. So we, we encountered that a bit in Japan. And then it was, I remember going to see Brighter and various other Sarah bands play and seeing the same thing there. These quite big gigs and heavenly. The bands were very bright and intelligent, but there was definitely a vibe, a kind of movement. And I, it was... I really, I, I, because I've, I, I appreciate why people are introverted and don't necessarily want to talk. Or, uh, Raymond, who I, I do a lot of music with, is the opposite to me. So he would hate those gigs, and he would say, "Why don't, why, why is the, why is that person looking at the floor? Why don't they address, look at, and look at the audience?" And I'm like, "Well, maybe they don't want to look at the audience. Maybe they want to, you know, they can keep themselves to themselves and concentrate on the music." So, so the, the Sarah acts were very polarizing, and I. Um, I just felt a part of it. I don't know why I just did. And um, and I, I really liked Matt and Claire. And I went up and down to Bristol a few times. Yes. And um, and then I started getting some of the bands I really got heavily into. And then I met Harvey, Harvey Williams, who was a Hit Parade fan. And he wrote me, a, I think, a fan letter. And then I phoned him up. And um, we met and just found we had tons and tons in common, basically. Yes. And then, and then all the world of the field mice and that exciting... Kind of, yes, scene that he was part of, I think, wasn't he? So how do you, because obviously um, quite a few people, you know, and, and, and sort of always, I'm not so amazed, but slightly, you know, like you were really into music and then one day they think, I'm just not going to do this anymore and literally put their guitar instrument, forget about music, for several decades, you know, do another job and then come back a bit with music. Whereas you, you managed to marry a successful career and still keep it creative. It did. It didn't destroy you because there are quite a few people. Not destroy, but you know, are just yeah. not feeling particularly happy. I remember I interviewed a guy who was in the janitors, and he told me about his signing the publishing deal, which was still, I think, still hurts him thirty years later. Where you know they did the recording, they got a bit. You know, they were got to basically given lots of booze, and they said, "Oh, you need to sign a publishing deal." So they signed it and said, "Oh, by the way, it's not legally binding if we don't give you any money." So here's a penny, and you know that album he said would have sold mm. thirty thousand. He never saw. He's never had a royalty check ever, and he, you know, he obviously. Yes, he quoted Hunter S. Thompson a lot to me. There was a quote by Hunter S. Thompson about sharks. Um, so how did you manage yes. to sort of cope in, in a world that you must be able to see does kind of like to chew mm. people up or elevate and then destroy? Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've been lucky to see both sides of it and I've seen artists being created by big corporate entities and all of that, but I just... There was there was a, only once I, I, my hip my hip my my band and my label I have always kept independent and I pay for everything and I I'm responsible for everything I register the songs I do everything I pay all the you know, all the every, anybody pays I just make sure it's mine. There was one time when a and I won't do the names but a label a well-known indie label asked me to write material for another indie act which i did and i spent about a year with the two people who would walk in i would play the songs i wrote nine songs on a record that came out which is still available now and i wasn't paid or credited so when that happened at the time i didn't really think about it a lot but i just thought i put it down to experience something new will come along 
anyway, you know, the years pass. Here we are now, <laughs> 2019. I think about that quite a lot, and I can see how it could really, really eat someone up. That basic form of being kind of because it's just unfair if 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 you are treated unfairly by any kind of commercial or corporate entity, it's it, it's it's incredibly destructive. So I I've countered that by just making sure that I protect every, everything I release, and I'm very cautious about it. Um, and you know, on the other side of the fence, I do a job. I work in the marketing. I work in television and entertainment fulfilling my you know i get paid for doing what i do for other people and you know they're the judge of whether or not i'm i'm kind of um credible and and reliable and fair and all those things which i would want to be yeah so um i but i but it's, i i guess the benefit i face i can see the line i can see a line really clearly and i'm very aware of it and i've written you know having written for the music for the papers i i can see what that's about so I'm not going to do something stupid in terms of my own creativity, you know, what, what I create. And that's the third part of my interview with Julian Henry. Still one little bit to come, but to um, keep, keep the show, show rolling, I think we should play some more music. This is taken, um, this is a single which came out only a couple of years ago, titled Happy World, indeed, 2019. What can possibly go wrong? OK, take it away. Lovingly constructed But very poorly planned We don't play live I can't sing in tune Despite the hours, days and nights Trying to convince myself There's nothing that I can do Oh yeah, we were tipping the tops of some indie chart
More poetry to pop, that's what I say. That was the hit parade with a track titled Happy World, and it came out last year, again on the JSH uh, record label, and this was for Record Stall Day 2018, and it's still available, I do believe. I think it was limited to 500 copies, so... Um, God knows if there's any more. But anyway, just Google about and you might be able to find it. Right, now, back to the interview. This is with me and Julian Henry talking about, um, yes, the creative process and also the ownership and all that kind of groovy stuff that only old people can get excited about. Julian, take it away. So I would, I, I would rather have something very precious that's very small, which is kind of how I really, really like my band. And it's so fantastic when you get people in different parts of the planet. I've got people who are in, in L.A. who in the last, I don't know, five or ten years who have sort of stumbled upon the hit parade and they're so great and they do bits and pieces, they make films and they do other things and it's like, this is great. Old records that, you know, it's 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 a really um, fantastic thing about music. Yes. Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, as we sort of mentioned earlier, you know, this, the, you know, the passing of time, you know, 30 years seems to be a, a sort of a time that, things take a different quality and I sort of realised that especially with certain record labels um, you know they've been reissuing and it, you know it's, I'm sure you yes yes the, the, so Cherry Red re, you know reissued the C86 as a triple and then C89 C88 yeah. and C, C89 Jesus I cocked that one up didn't I but you know you got the chips <laughs> <laughs> they basically had, had a sort of formula and they thought God you know I just need to sort of find all these little you know, singles that were released on flexi discs, put them in a you know triple CD box set, and um, and people will love it. And you know, people have sort of gone back and found them, and and have sort of discovered it. And and for me, I sort of realised that I haven't actually a lot of these bands that I've interviewed, I didn't actually listen to the first time round because there was enough that I thought, well, I can't listen to everything. And actually, I couldn't even get hold of some of the stuff. I just read about them, but it wasn't the same as hearing it. So you kind of mm. can go back and, and then, you know, listen to people like the Easter House and think, God, they were really good. I don't know why I didn't yeah. listen to them, but it's because I didn't have the opportunity. And then you listen and think, I must try and track down their record. So it's interesting how culturally the music that was being made during the 80s, and it probably is the same with the previous decades, because there was so much of it, and we created all this this world it's still about 30 years later and I think that the, the point I'm trying to make I suppose in a bad mm. way you know quite a bad way is that there was this structure with the John Pill in you know, enemy and all the other papers and then yeah. you had all these indie clubs in little art centers and churches and and yeah. town halls and between the two of them there was like this kind of very holistic kind of world that the, each one fed each other so that you know like you know, interview, you know, having interviewed bands, people didn't necessarily go on a proper tour. They would just go, oh, we've got a date in Glasgow. We'll just drive to Glasgow and then we'll come all the way back. And oh, there's someone in Bristol. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I don't know what the scene is like now for bands who want to go and say, well, I hope we can get, you know, an audience that isn't going to be friends and family and anybody else that we've just kind of, you know, emotionally blackmailed to come and see us tonight. Because that, that for me, you know, I just wondered what the legacy of this period that we're living in now will be like in 30 years' time. I think it's good. I mean, do you listen to new bands? Did you go onto YouTube and find new new groups, young I, groups? Yes. Well, I do try, and I, I'm probably more Spotify than YouTube, actually. So I'm sort of, <coughs> you know, I'm sort of using that quite a lot, and sort of desperately trying to find somebody who can sort of navigate who, you know, what bands are sort of happening at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I I've got to say I do it quite a bit, and I 
I, I go and see, I don't see bands a lot now, but I do, I, there's a few bands around, young little bands who I really like. Like there's um, a band called Orves, that if you come across them. Archie Marry Me, do you know that one? No. They're like a four-piece. They're like, they're like very romantic and sentimental and melodic. And I discovered them through one of their a fan video on YouTube. And then there's the Bets, which are from New Zealand. There's funny little, and then there's, uh, there's, there's, there's quite a few pop Got a few interesting little pop bands around, Phaser Days, um, and I find people email me. And also, that's the other weird thing you do. I hate algorithms, but if I watch a few of these new bands, then lo and behold, the old algorithms start shoving other things at me yes. on 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 YouTube. And not all of it is bad. I mean, some of it. When they do that with old music, it's like algorithm. Don't tell me about that because I I was there and I lived through it so you don't know better than I do but with some of the new stuff the algorithm can be can be okay yes well, my I, take on it <laughs> well I sort of realized because with Spotify you know you can just whatever artist you can just say oh David Bowie radio and it sort of gives you that 40 tracks that you know waiting you know in, infant and that yeah. and records connected with that and I can realize I realize that you can do that with everything but just coming back to your own creative world what mm. is what's kind of happening for the band and you now Okay, so we've done, um, we did an album about Cornwall, which um, I've, I've been going up and down to Cornwall for a long time, 25 years, when my best friends are down there. I did an album called Cornish um, Pop Songs, which was out in 2014, and it's like indie pop songs, just all written about the little world around West Penwith, about the fishermen, about just stuff that goes on down there, and it was did okay. It, I mean, the CD kind of sold out and we repressed it onto vinyl. So that's gone. And um, so that happened in 2014, 15, 16. And I've been recording ever since with Raymond, who was my school friend, my original school friend. He, he's in another band. He's, he's in a kind of, got another music project, which takes him around the world and does lots of things with that. But he's back in London. So I've been recording with him and we're, we're about, 12 10 or 12 songs into a new hit parade album and we're putting them out single by single so we did one um about 18 months ago called oh honey i and then the last one um was for record store day 2018 um and then we'll have a new one coming out for um record store day 2019 which will be seven inch these are seven inch vinyl only so i i really want the people who bothered to buy some of those early singles to have the sort of sad joy and happiness that I always feel when I collect a set of something yes. so I I, I, I as, as you, you said that you were a fanboy earlier and I, I'm, I've always been I always love collecting things so all my all our single sleeves kind of look the same basically and they sit together really nicely so we're doing this new single uh, which will be called Joey's Girl which is we out in April I think of um, 2019 Yes. And do you still play live when, when the sort of mo mo moment and mood takes you? Uh, we, uh, last time I played live, so I did a Sarah Records exhibition down in um, Bristol, the Arnold Feeney. Um, so I just did an acoustic thing there. But f for me to do the band live, would I'd have to take, it'd be, it's difficult, I'd have to take a lot, I'd have to take about 10 weeks off work. And my Matt runs a he doesn't he, he's got a lighting design company 
Raymond is always on the road. Raymond is on the road the whole time with his other band playing across America. So getting the time to us to rehearse as a core three piece. And then we've got Mike, who is our piano player, who was at school with me as well. And Kath, who is in Chicago and only comes over about once a year. It's really tricky. Yeah. So, so there's, we've been offered things. We get offered um, indie pop festivals and New York things and stuff in um, Barcelona and Berlin. But to be honest with you, I'm saving it for when it feels like we've all got the time to do it because we don't really haven't got the time at the moment. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I know, um, you know, Amelia Fletcher, who was in Tallulah Gosh. Yeah. Um, her day job. I don't know if you ever Googled Amelia Fletcher at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, she's got something like an OBE or CBE, isn't she, in economics? That's right. And she's at the UEA just up the road. And I noticed that she sort of got a, a little combo called, is it Catenary, Catenary Wires, that she sort of plays, you know, with her, I guess, her partner, actually. And I know it's kind of, I just think it's a fantastic thing that one minute she's a professor, you know, fantastically honoured, you know, in the world of economics and then she's got these kind of great little you know indie band that she still loves and is still putting out youtube you know videos and releasing singles and i i just think that is such a nice thing to still be doing yeah it's um it's she's yeah couldn't agree more it's it's, it's kind of it, it, there's a restriction i think in terms of t- time as to what you can do but she's she's managed to do more than i have in terms of um live stuff because i know she's done she appears at things and i i've only done it sporadically but um I'd be happy to, but I, I kind of, um, I, I like, I was always, when, when, when I was first dreaming about pop music, the thing that really got me interested was lying in my bedroom, staring at the ceiling, listening to, you know, whatever the record was by the Shangri-Las or, or whoever it was. It was that. And then I went to go and see bands afterwards. And that was a different thing. But to me, the pop, the two, three minute pop single is still a kind of supreme art form that, um, that, that, that it's a mountain that needs to be conquered and, and 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 songwriters you know these great great songwriters from carol king and brown wilson all of them lennon mccartney all of them baccarat david those are the people i've always sort of worshipped and sought to emulate really with so i started the song yeah so i'm i'm less i mean i would do the live thing but i i, I would want to make it good and i think i'd more likely concentrate on making a record yeah and the, and the records that the last record we did, Happy World, I I, I always put co- you know, riddles and codes in my in my music and with, with the words, which I you know try, people try to figure out, <laughs> literary references and things like that. So I really really labour pathetically <laughs> <laughs> over sort of uh, a line, and so that's where I spend all my time and effort really. Yes. And, um, and that is really going to be the end of the interview that I did with Julian Henry from the hit parade before we went and started talking about the latest Bros film, which, let's face it, we all did, and then the Fire Festival film as well. But anyway, enough chat for the moment. This is the end, to quote Jim Morrison. Thank you ever so much for listening. A big thank you to Julian Henry. If you want to know any more information about the hit parade, you can just go to their website. Um, just Google the hit parade band. It will find, you will find it there. And um, there's lots of information. And as he said, they've got a single coming out 
very soon in the spring. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show and all the shows are available on Spotify, iTunes, iTunes. Yes, that's right. Um, PL Podbean, just go to C86show. It's all there and much, much more. Anyway, have a great week. And this I'm going to play is where it all began. This is the hit parade and a track titled Forever. Goodbye.